Hello, and welcome to the Main Question Podcast. Thanks for coming along for the ride. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. So stick with me here because this episode has a lot going on. In the big picture, it's about a lot of things. War, pandemics, wildlife, and underneath all of those topics lie the concept that everything is connected and that these connections can be quite fragile. Also, unintended consequences can topple like dominoes and literally affect the entire planet. When something big happens in our environment, for instance, it can affect human behavior and that of wildlife. In this case, mallard ducks. Similarly, when humans wage war, it not only can affect millions of people, it can alter the environment. All of these things happen during a pandemic. Not the one we're in currently, but the last one, a century ago. Confused? Well, here's what we're talking about in this episode on the main question. So, World War I raged across Europe from 1914 to 1918. At the tail end of the war, the Spanish flu epidemic kicked into high gear, ultimately infecting about a third of the world's population, some 500 million people at the time. Woven into all of that, researchers at the Climate Change Institute at UMaine and the University of Nottingham in England examined an anomaly in the climate in Europe during that time. From 1914 to 1920, the climate in Europe was unusually wet and cold. That made the flu virus more damaging. Birds such as mallard ducks are known carriers of flu viruses. They altered their behavior, potentially transferring the disease to more people. Dust and pollution from the war exacerbated the cold, wet weather, contributing to this negative feedback loop. 22 million died as a result of the war, both military personnel and civilians. An estimated 50 million people died from the Spanish flu worldwide. Climate changes can alter behavior in people and the natural world. Human-caused phenomena can impact the Earth's climate. It's a lesson from history that resonates today with the coronavirus pandemic and changes happening to the climate system. Alex Moore is the lead author of the study, which pulled climate history from an ice core drilled in Europe and made the connection to the war and the pandemic. He's a climate scientist and historian who works at UMaine's Climate Change Institute and Harvard. He also teaches at Long Island University. Paul Majewski is the director of the Climate Change Institute at UMaine and a co-author of the study. We spoke over Zoom about this work. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. It's very uh, interesting work that you have uh, laid out here. Maybe you could sort of, it seems to me, it's sort of uh, a story about a, a negative feedback loop. Can you lay out the big picture question that you were trying to answer or what you were really looking at as you undertook this project? Maybe, Alex, let's start with you. We looked at extreme events in our record. We often do that. And uh, this particular event in between 1914 and 1919, 1920, really stood out to us as a once in a century anomaly where sodium and chlorine concentration in our ice core uh, were very, very high. And uh, of course, uh, as some of us have historical training we know quite well, uh, you don't really need it, but you, we know quite well what was going on in, in that period, particularly uh, World War I, and uh, uh, then, and more importantly for me, the Spanish flu pandemic, which started uh, in uh, 1918 with a wave, just as we did, uh, you know, 102 years later, uh, this past spring, a wave in February, March, April, uh, then a lull, and a drop in mortality and, and cases, and then another a second wave, very very lethal, in the fall of that same year, 
and we looked at our record again and and saw that there was a, a strong association with between the increased concentration of uh, sea salt, particularly sodium chlorine. That that's those are the components of salt in our ice core and the mortality record. And I dug in a little deeper and found the mortality records for 13 different countries, added them up. Notably, this data had never been actually published in open access to anybody for anybody. Uh, now it is. Uh, and uh, combined it with precipitation records and our reanalysis records from uh, our amazing tool uh, that the Climate Change Institute has produced, Climate Reanalyzer. And all, all things pointed to the same uh, phenomenon that uh, climate had directly affected uh, mortality, how many, how many people died, uh, not only during the, the world conflict, but also uh, during the pandemic in particular. Paul, you've looked at a lot of significant climactic events over, over the years and the centuries. How did you look at this one in terms of other ones you've looked at? Well, the, the joint research program between Harvard and UMaine CCI uh, has been focusing to a large degree on pandemics. And of course, pandemics are uh, even more important to understand now. But remember also that as of uh, 2019, it was the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. So, of course, we all were thinking a lot more about World War I. And since we'd already worked on the Black Death and looked at some of the economic implications of the Black Death and, and the loss of half of the population of Europe, we thought we should look at World War I. And as Alex uh, suggested, we tend in our ice core records, and this one is extremely well resolved and well dated, we tend to look at anomalies. And during the period of World War I, there is a very dramatic anomaly. So immediately you begin to think of your, think to yourself, you know, why did this anomaly occur and what did it possibly have to do with World War I? And it's a sort of looking for anomalies in our records, trying to combine them with information that we get from other records and then trying to translate that into something that has value with respect to climate and application to people, of course, is the thing we try to do. I was trying to come up with an apt metaphor or an analogy for the work you, you folks did. And I, I was toying with sort of the butterfly effect where a butterfly wing flapping sort of reverberates out and changes things across the globe or maybe pulling on a spider web and, you know, it, it changes the whole web, not just what you pull on. Something that gets to the interconnectedness, the interdependence, fragility of everything. I, I don't know, help me out. Is, is that sort of the phenomenon we're looking at here when you look at this, this period of time and, and what happened? There's a quote that's often misquoted by John Muir, uh, that is, if one tugs at a single thing in nature, he finds that it is attached to the rest of the world. Um, <laughs> the interdisciplinary project we work on aims to uh, achieve what E.O. Wilson, who is perhaps one of the greatest uh, naturalists who ever lived, calls consilience, that it's the independent agreement of completely independent records, just like uh, Paul just said, a natural record from the Alp an Alpine ice core, uh, epidemiological records from uh, an epidemic, historical records, archaeological records, precipitation, instrumental records. So um, 
if you actually do study this field, it sort of exists as environmental health, but environmental health generally looks at the health of people only and then what's around them. And what we are really trying to achieve here is a, a much more comprehensive uh, picture where we look at what the environment is experiencing and, and people in that environment. Uh, it's sometimes called one health approach uh, in some fields, planetary health. And if you're more on the American Geophysical Union side of things, uh, the journal where we published is dedicated precisely to this type of discipline. So in fact, the, the field, uh, the fields that we are straddling uh, all have recognized in, in recent decades that uh, you can't get away from the interconnectedness that you, Ron, just highlighted. Can you give us uh, an idea of in what order the dominoes fell? I mean, World War I happened, and then the, the, the weather anomaly happened, and the dust from the war made it worse, and then the, the flu bug, the wildlife connection. So how did this all unfold? I don't think we can we can answer the chicken or the egg or the chicken or the duck and the duck or the egg sort of question in this particular case. Uh, I think uh, it's difficult to to say. I believe that all things happen at the same time. The war uh, got going in 1914. I think that uh, the uh, climate anomaly uh, was there already, uh, at least from our records, uh, but. Uh, it does create what you said, a vicious, what you indicated as a vicious circle. And I do think that the more I do research on on these things, actually, we can perhaps answer the duck or the egg sort of question. And that is that the, the, the vector of the pandemic, uh, which is most likely a, a bird, uh, most likely a, a, a duck, the mallard, is the primary carrier of the disease recognized worldwide by all epidemiologists as the primary carrier. Uh, genetic data suggests as much. And the disease occurred in 2018, and sorry, <laughs> 1918. And we can at least know that if there was a climate component uh, that influenced migrations, which again, historically and scientifically has been proven, to be the case for many other diseases, including H1N1 and other cases, then uh, the climate anomaly certainly affected the, the animal vector, the vector of the disease. Uh, H1N1, Spanish flu, is a vector-borne disease and therefore uh, contributed at least to its spread. So it rains, the, uh, it, uh, we have an enormous influx, you know, sea salt, perhaps we haven't explained it yet, but uh, uh, sodium and chlorine increase in our record when we have a northwest to southeast uh, transport of cold marine air from the North Atlantic. And uh, Paul can explain this much better than I uh, can. But the anomaly is so severe based on our climate reanalyzer uh, data and uh, precipitation data that it certainly affected migrations because the migrations of these animals are very, very sensitive to climate. So how? We can't know. Uh, there is really no way to easily flesh this out. Nobody's absor observing birds uh, that closely, at least certainly not that, back, that far back. Uh, but it certainly did affect vectors, without a doubt. And as birds contaminate the water they're in, particularly uh, 
lakes they like, lakes, Lake Geneva, uh, sorry, Lake Constance, which is right below uh, <laughs> Colony Fetti, not very far, uh, is a, a very favorite mallard hangout. There are many others around Europe. And torrential rain made all bodies of water overflow. Uh, and we know that one of the major culprits in public health for vector-borne diseases is water, uh, contaminated water. Uh, as far back as Jon Snow taking the handle off the pump in, uh, in Soho uh, in 1854, I believe it was the, the year. So uh, we're just in that tradition. We're following that tradition, expanding our uh, view. Paul, the uh, role of wildlife sort of came back around with COVID, didn't it? To talk about it. COVID-19 or coronavirus originating in bats or other wildlife. So this is a problem that is still with us, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're perturbing the natural environment. Uh, we're utilizing the natural environment in ways which are detrimental to our health. There are tons of parallels between the Spanish flu and COVID-19. Uh, hopefully the parallels will stop soon, but the parallels in that period at the period of the Spanish flu, there was a war. Uh, and that war, of course, made people even uh, less likely to survive a flu uh, for any number of physical and psychological reasons. Uh, at that time, there was also uh, a weather phenomena which appears to uh, be relatively unique for based on the previous 70 years or so. Uh, and then all of a sudden you have the introduction of the disease. It's absolutely no different than what we have right now. Uh, we don't have a war, certainly in North America, uh, but we do have a climate change, greenhouse gas warming, uh, which is creating tremendous instability in the climate system. Uh, as consequence, we have storms, we have wildfires, all of the things that we're seeing lately. Uh, in addition to that, we have relative, we have decreased uh, our health as a consequence of the pollutants that we put into the air, akin to what happened during World War I, uh, with all of the gases, all of the dust in the air, the explosions. And the net result in both cases was a dramatic shutdown in the economy, without a doubt, for both of them. Uh, and in the case of World War I, of course, because they had poorer technology, uh, ideally, we have a much better chance uh, of coming out of this faster and, and more efficiently. So in a way, climate change is the equivalent, in terms of COVID-19, of World War I. Uh, and the very same things come together. And that's why it's so critically important to study history, to study past. And this is the history of people, climate, all sorts of things. We don't want to repeat our mistakes. Uh, and if we were doing due diligence, we would have been looking for uh, evidence of this. We would have realized that we are in a weakened state uh, and we would have been trying to basically slow or prevent the war, which in this particular case today is, is climate change. And this is not the only thing that has uh, been a consequence of or certainly uh, intensified by climate change. So has uh, mass migration and a variety of other things which we're all very familiar with. So while World War I was 100 years ago, uh, the lesson is still the same. The parallels are still the same. It's critically important for us to keep on thinking about this. Uh, and 
I spend, as you know, a great deal of my time in expeditions. And I always like to say, you know, you can make one mistake on an expedition and you can probably recover from it. You make two and you better start thinking very carefully about where you are and what's going on. And you make a third and you're in really big trouble. And in both the case of the Spanish flu and COVID-19, we've made three, at least three mistakes. So we need to be very careful. Alex, there were major battles in World War I that were profoundly affected by this. Millions of people dying for in, in, in just one battle or two battles. Is that right? I actually don't know the precise casualty numbers. Uh, the Daily Mail uh, cobbled them up, and I can probably bring them up, but I, I don't want to quote inaccurate information. But certainly there were millions of casualties from the war, not only as a result of explosions or uh, as a result of combat, but also as a result of um, disease, trench foot exposure, and uh, uh, pneumococcal infections of the uh, of the lungs, which we know as pneumonia, <laughs> eventually, uh, which often occurred at, at least in the latter part of the war, uh, concurrently with at the same time as uh, the flu infections. So, uh, in fact, we know that a lot of the casualties from the Spanish flu were also soldiers were infected, co-infected at the same time. It's called comorbidity in public health with uh, pneumococcal infections. And that really does have uh, had an enormous uh, effect on the overall casualties. Uh, you can really see how water has an effect on this by looking at the fall wave of uh, the uh, 1918 Spanish flu, and you can see there is a double peak in precipitation, a double peak in overall mortality, which in excess mortality is much higher than any other time during uh, the war or the pandemic. And and that really tells you how the, the climate affects health on, a, on an enormous scale. Just to go back for a second to the question you mentioned earlier, the question you asked earlier about whether COVID is still um, proposing the same problems to us. Uh, I just want to add one thing. I say this in every interview and every, because hopefully somebody will pick it up. And that is that the easiest thing we can do to prevent future pandemics is to act to protect those vectors, to protect those animals. Uh, so wildlife trade in particular needs to be banned worldwide right away. And it is unnecessary, it brings no money to uh, anyone in particular that needs it. Uh, only uh, big magnates, big, big con con uh, conglomerates. And it is an enormous threat to our health. And of course, we are, uh, we don't need to trade in wildlife in order to, as Paul just said, in order to affect wildlife. Uh, climate change is doing that in a world, world war scale, at a world war scale, uh, worldwide, with wildfires, with uh, hurricanes, with deforestation. Uh, so I think conservation has to be one of the solutions to this. Paul, we've talked about climate change stories in various ways over the years. I know you've said climate has always changed, but does the distinction come down to uh, the rate of change that, that we're experiencing, human-caused climate disruption is many times faster than, than what might happen naturally, and it's hard to adapt quickly when that's going on? Is that a fair assessment? Yes, and it, it's absolutely true that climate has changed in the past. It's changed because of natural causes. 
if you look at all of those natural causes, in particular things like greenhouse gases, which can fluctuate naturally, uh, dusts in the atmosphere, uh, even introduction of toxic metals, rocks have toxic metals, all of those things uh, are the, provide the tools by which climate changes. However, what we've done is we've put climate on speed uh, and we have accelerated dramatically how fast this can happen. Uh, and it's happening so fast, but not necessarily at the same speed and in the same way everywhere around the planet, which makes it a bit more complicated, a lot more complicated for people to envision it. Uh, when the term global warming was first coined, it was a great soundbite. Uh, and we will eventually get to global warming, but we're not there yet. What we are experiencing is uneven warming of the planet. Uh, and that's creating all sorts of other instabilities in, in atmospheric circulation systems and, and a variety of other things. So it's quite remarkable to think that uh, had we all been here a century ago, we would have definitely experienced some changes but we were living in a different climate in Maine. We were living in a climate in which in the winter you could take your horse and cart and cross Penobscot Bay uh, from Belfast to Castine. Obviously, you can't do that anytime right now. Uh, things have even changed since the 70s uh, and the 80s. They're changing fast, and that puts us in even uh, more critical situation. And, and just to go back to World War I for one second, uh, I, I believe it's true. Uh, the U.S. entered the war a little later than other countries. Uh, I believe it is true that there were more U.S. soldiers killed by the flu than in combat. It's pretty clear why biological warfare is such a terrifying thing, uh, because you can kill more people uh, biologically by in, in infecting them than you can probably kill them with almost uh, anything else. Uh, so we have to be very, very vigilant and we, we need, as we have had in the past, not currently, we need people from the CDC all over the world, along with other countries, looking for evidence of this so that we can prepare ourselves. We need uh, significant research, uh, which is clearly going on, but uh, many uh, we need this research to be sustained, uh, not just when we have problems like now, but from year to year, because we will have another pandemic. There's no doubt about it. Hopefully it'll be a few decades from now, but there will be another pandemic. That is an absolutely absolute certainty. Uh, Alex, following up on, on what Paul said, and I heard you talk about this on CNN, many people think of climate change in terms of hot and cold, but you uh, said maybe we should think about it in terms of what, what Paul said too, is instability. Is that the biggest effect or negative effect of, of what we're experiencing right now? Indeed, and that was actually Paul's quote. Okay. <laughs> that, that, Alex, that Alex politely used. <laughs> yes. uh, so that was, that was Paul's quote during uh, an event that we, we held um, during Climate Week. But yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's the extremization, if that's a word, of uh, patterns of uh, not only climate, but also behavior that is dependent on climate. Uh, I often ask my students, my uh, colleagues, even, uh, you know, reporters, think about what you do in the morning before going out. Don't you check what temperature it is? Don't you check 
what the weather is going to be like don't you, doesn't that determine what you're wearing where you go how you go how you get there and that that is the most one of the largest determinants of how we live our lives and the more exposed you are to the elements to the environment the more uh you are uh conditioned by it and therefore imagine how animals react to it right and we we keep thinking and trying to solve problems for humans right we we try to solve for humans for a human solution and by doing that we don't understand that we are in fact perpetuating the same problem over and over again if we actually can empathize with animals for a second and start to think about how animals are uh experiencing climate change and how they um they migrate uh freely especially birds uh migrate freely and carry their diseases with them and as they do they change our disease environment too uh as i said birds have been a carrier and a primary vector of disease for centuries and recognized as such for centuries uh all over the world uh, even without you know my, microbiology uh you can they recognize this i mean humans of the past could recognize things uh and should be respected for for their opinions and observations so we really need to find the ecosystem solution to climate change uh rather than just a human solution that is really the key and once we have that i don't want to use the word holistic but uh that that system wide the earth wide planetary uh, whatever you want to call it solution to it then we can actually make progress and i think you know those of us who spend time in in nature uh you know, paul certainly more than me uh, in very remote and uh and very beautiful areas of the world uh but you know i myself was in massachusetts last week uh two weeks ago excuse me and uh i went to my favorite forest and went to my favorite lake which is a reservoir and which i was uh, rowing and swimming uh through the summer it's empty it's it's more than more than 12 feet deep in certain places it's empty now where did the fish go and where did the where did the turtles go and where did the birds go the si- the forest was silent water is life uh <laughs> never actually understood as as well as as a couple of weeks ago that's it's a motto of of uh advocates of environmental advocates uh, especially from indigenous communities uh in the Lakota tribes and it's true and once water is gone so is life uh, you you don't see animals anymore they migrate and they go to your home and then they will you know polar bears will go to to urban areas and uh and they will make things difficult so we really need to think about an ecosystem wide solution not a human just a human solution you know we keep thinking of climate change as a problem of the future but we're seeing it right right in front of us here all the the struggle for many scientists is not only to do good science and as you've experienced over the years but to communicate that broadly and help people make the best decisions and policy possible can you talk about that struggle and does a concrete example like this study of world war 1 uh help sort of make it more digestible for people that and help relay the message better maybe Yes, certainly examples this is another uh, valuable thing about history not just uh, looking at history to avoid repeating past mistakes 
uh, but as examples of what we're experiencing today or might experience uh, in the future. It's, it's a great way to describe things. And uh, it's important to remember, though, that those example, different examples obviously have relevance to different people and depending upon upon where they live. Um, Alex and, uh, and a colleague of ours, Charles Norkey, who I believe you know, uh, Ron, uh, are just about finished with a, a document that uh, basically says climate matters to your security, your health, and your wealth. And I think you can, you, those three words really sum up why one should be concerned about climate change. And there's tremendous depth that you can dive into in each one of these. And we've put together a series of 10 statements uh, with some backups from URLs, some of our own uh, research that we hope will uh, give people the opportunity to understand how complex yet absolutely understandable uh, climate change is. We certainly know that there's a component of warming. We, we're now beginning to understand uh, as, a, as the public uh, some of the health implications. Um, but in this one document, we're trying to briefly outline for everybody all of the things that are, not all, but many of the things. Uh, there are great websites all over the world uh, that give you various aspects of climate change and they give you great examples. Uh, but we've developed this because we want to make this a focus for people. And in many ways, uh, a, a cheat sheet for them, 10 basic things that you really should know about climate change if you care about your security, your health, and your wealth. And the URL is uh, whyclimatematters.com. Yep. We're excited about it because a climate scientist, uh, a somebody who specializes in health and policy, uh, and, and a lawyer are involved, obviously all related to our university. Uh, and it's a way for us to remind people uh, how important this issue is. Uh, and because it's so easy to forget, it's 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 the same as owning a, a a car. You sometimes you might forget that you need to change the oil, and that's why you have a list uh, that tells you and reminds you. And climate change should be considered in the same way, it because it is so complex. But again, it's all understandable. It's just a matter of having it all in one place. So final question for both of you, maybe. So how do you combat the feeling that pe many people have that even if climate change is here and it's human driven, that it's too big a problem and too hard to really do anything about and also convince them that what happens in the Arctic or the Antarctic or Greenland uh, affects the coast of Maine or affects New Orleans? How do you get around that? Well, those are two different two different issues. Um, the, the idea that it's too big a problem and has too many moving parts and therefore uh, forget about it. Well, so do our lives. <laughs> everything. Our lives are pretty complicated. Jobs, families, everything else. And yet we don't have any choice. We have to deal with it. Uh, and climate change is exactly the same way. It underpins so many things uh, that we do that it, it's better not to worry about, can I actually change it myself? What's more important is, do you understand what's going on now? Uh, do you have an understanding of what could happen in the future? And are you preparing yourself uh, correctly so that you can, uh, in some cases, even benefit? There will be entrepreneurs who, and they're already emerging, uh, people who are finding remarkable solutions to, for example, uh, 
as crops be in places like Bangladesh uh, that are normally fed by fresh water become inundated by salt water, are there plants that they can put there instead that are more salt water tolerant? Wow, big, big deal. You can save a country. And there are so many examples like that. So rather than worrying about it, the fact that it's too big to deal with, uh, or that you're, we're all just small little pieces in this, and no matter how uh, strict a life we live or how much we are concerned about green uh, situations, that we nothing's going to change, we need to realize that uh, in order to live in this world, function in this world, uh, and contribute to this world, we need to carve off the pieces that we have some control about and deal with them and understand them. Alex, your thoughts? Well, I think uh, Paul is exactly right. And, you know, I, I'll give you an everyday example. When you have a great task, a great project to accomplish, uh, do, you, do, you, do you look at the whole thing and, and think, oh, my God, I'm, I'm not going to be able to finish it uh, by, by the end of my lifetime? And, and, you know, if you start doing that, you're never going to get done. Uh, the proper way to to uh, finish anything that is worth achieving, and this certainly is worth achieving, um, solving climate change and mitigating it, the only way is to start from the small and build up to the big. I mean, this is the, the way to negotiation. It's the way to, to, to good science. You start with small tasks, build on success, and uh, eventually you will get to the final stage. And I don't think it's, uh, you know, I, th I think that it is a, a problem of perspective, thinking that, that we are powerless uh, to, to solve this problem. I don't think we're powerless. I don't know who wants to feel powerless going throughout their lives. I certainly don't. And I, I think, you know, if you just look at, for example, what we went through in the last six months with uh, the pandemic, you can see that uh, compared to the death toll of the Spanish flu, which was 50 million people with 500 million infected, that's one third of the population of the, of the world at the time. Uh, today, that would be, uh, uh, you know, 2.5 billion people infected, which is enormous. If you consider uh, the small scale of what we just experienced compared to the Spanish flu, but the large scale in terms of economic impact that we have experienced and how we are still alive, we're here, our economic system has not collapsed, uh, but we've seen enormous changes in pollution. We've seen enormous changes in the way that people behave and work, uh, sped up by this crisis. Uh, a crisis is, you know, pandemics are the stress tests of societies. Uh, throughout history. And uh, when when you have stress, things become more fluid and you try to find a solution to it. And we have found many solutions to this problem, uh, how to continue our lives. We're doing it right now on Zoom, how to continue working and, and doing, you know, safely conducting our lives. Uh, so I think that the idea that this is a problem that's unsolvable is an optical illusion. I think that we do have the the wherewithal and the technology to do it, the goodwill to do it. And as John Kennedy used to say, I do not shrink from that responsibility. I welcome it. Let's do it. This is what what better thing to to uh, to live and die doing. This is uh, really the the defining 
uh, crisis, the defining challenge of our time, and uh, I welcome the opportunity to do it. And I think a lot of other people should and will uh, do so as well. I just just wanted to add that who in the world would not want to have sufficient clean water, clean air, better jobs, uh, smaller amounts of disease that are related to pollutants, uh, as a consequence, a better quality of life. Uh, who in the world would not want to preserve? Well, I guess there are some people, but who in the world would not want to preserve a lot of the things that all of our parents and ancestors got to experience uh, in the wild? And if you think about it that way, uh, even if you don't visualize or understand climate change, I think everybody can get together and say, yeah, I, I, I want all of those things. That's, a, that's certainly what I want. I'd like maybe to be richer too. Well, guess what? You might even get richer in the process. But those other things, you don't need money to, to do that. Uh, you need uh, the right sort of legislation and the right sort of uh, grassroots action. And it is very impressive to see what's going on in places like Maine with all of the grassroots environmental action people helping people to make their houses easier to, to keep the temperature at a comfortable level, uh, people thinking more about preserving the forests, on and on. So these are all, it's, it's a win-win situation. There's no doubt that climate change will happen. There is no doubt that we are going to experience more, but I'd make the case that even, even if nothing changed from here on, it would still be the smartest thing for us to do and for society. Well, that's a, a good message to end on and uh, fascinating work. And thank you both for, uh, for sharing it with us. Oh, thank you for your thanks. thoughtful questions. Yeah, thanks, Ron. The website Alex and Paul mentioned is whyclimatematters.com. Really a great resource that breaks down this most complex of problems into digestible, useful information. Thanks, as always, for checking us out. We welcome any feedback you may have at mainquestion at main.edu. All of our episodes can be found on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Till next time, this is Ron Lisnack.